Welcome to the School of Athens by Estelle and Leah. Making philosophy more accessible to younger people. Hi everybody, we're back. We are back, I'm Estelle. I'm Leah. We decided to do another episode. Mm-hmm. And this time, our topic is mind and body. So just before we begin, I want to set myself a little goal in this episode, I guess, is to like speak in a more articulate way. <laughs> and yeah, just thought I'd share my goals and see if I've improved or not. Yeah, same for me. And also, I'll try to have less pauses when I speak, maybe. We'll see how it goes. So starting with last episode, we talked a bit about Plato. And for this episode, we're going to start with um, what Plato thinks about the mind and body. Plato is basically a substance dualist. What that means is um, that he thinks that the mind and body are separate entities. So basically that uh, they are made of completely different things. For example, often the soul is uh, said to be eternal while the body is not. Another very famous dualist is Descartes, who you might know him from this famous cogito ergo sum. I don't know how to say it in English. Like it's weird. I think therefore I am. No, I mean like uh, the pronunciation of the like Latin words. But in, in German you would say like cogito ergo sum. That's really yeah. <laughs> So yeah. basically um that's yeah, I think therefore I am. So very famous book, um Meditations on First Philosophy kind of starts with the idea we don't know anything. Like he radically erases all the information that he holds to be true and says the only thing that I can be really sure of is that I exist because if I didn't then I wouldn't even be able to think right so even if I'm being tricked into thinking that I exist in a way or that I live in another reality then I still have to exist in order to be tricked because he thinks that um that could be like an say um there's like an evil demon that can Mm -hmm. uh take control and um your body can be taken control by that evil demon as well which is why he thinks that the mind must be separate from the body because um the only thing you can be sure of is your thoughts because in doubting everything you're still thinking Exactly. And yeah, as you said, because you can be sure of the mind, but you cannot be sure of your body, um, they have to be separate because in his, uh, you know, reasoning, they have to be separate because they already have something like not in common. And for just going back to Plato, I think he doesn't really distinguish between the mind and soul. Like I said, last episode, he has this whole thing about remembrance and like how he thinks that the soul sort of resides in the world of forms as i said before the the when we're born because of the trauma of the birth the soul forgets everything um, like all the perfect forms in the world of forms and the soul has its new body it starts starts to like remember what is so in the world of forms do you um, think the, the soul is eternal like do you believe that i think if if i believe in a soul if there is a soul then i think it right. is internal because mm-hmm. I feel like the soul is this whole immaterial, almost like divinely thing. If we're talking more about mind, you know, do you think we, our mind is kind of eternal? You know what I mean? Like, do you think our, uh, we'll still be able to exist in some way after we die? So do you essentially like believe that we, like mind-body dualism is true? I'd like to believe that the mind and body are separate, but whether the mind is 
eternal and whether it lives on after the body dies I don't really know what do you think yeah I think it's very complicated I think it's almost a little bit demystifying if you connect the two so if you don't believe that they are separate if you think that the mind's only you know um, something that happens because of the way that our brain is structured yeah I mean what I'm trying to say is that it's demystifying if you think that um the the brain is basically everything that we have and that if we die you know uh, our mind also dies but on the other hand i think it, it's true you know because i believe in modern science and i think that the evidence is so strong for them to be connected like the mind and the body what i find really interesting is because we're so engrossed in our own mind and our and our place in our own world i feel like it's we don't think about how other people are also like in their own minds with the whole doubt with uh, Descartes you can't really even be sure if other people truly have the same like think the same way that you do or like have minds as well because you yeah. can't really prove that yeah exactly I don't know it's it's so difficult to then believe anything you know for example we base most or everything that we believe on is our senses right what if we're the world that we see or we hear or whatever isn't true I mean I think going that down that road is such a rabbit hole like you know I, I think it's so difficult to get out of that sort of thinking <laughs> yeah and that's like what we talked about with Aristotle being such a stand for empirical evidence, it does seem you're more grounded on earth when you believe, like when you don't doubt what you see around you and your senses. But on the other hand, I think it's important to consider that our sense, or to at least question how reliable, you know, our senses are or beliefs that we have about the world how strong they are. I mean, even in, in science, you know, that we, that's, let's say, like the most epistemic way to find out more about the world. Even there, it's important to question, like, what role our interpretation of um, experience, for example, plays in, in the facts that we then retrieve from that. Like, I think it's super interesting to see, to make the connection of how reliable science really can be if yeah. our senses aren't really reliable. Yeah, exactly. Did we kind of get off topic? I don't know. <laughs> no, well, let's pull it back now, because um, I want to talk about Plato's charioteer analogy. And he wrote about this in one of his dialogues called Phaedrus. Um, so the charioteer analogy, so obviously this is a charioteer, and then there's um, the charioteer is controlling two horses. And one of the horses <laughs> represents appetite and desires, and the other horse is representing um, spirit. And then whereas the charioteer is sort of controlling the appetite and the spirit and it's more like the logical reason, decision-making aspect. Does he think that, that they're the same for everybody? That, you know, for example, the strengths of the two horses or the strength of the charioteer, that it's the same for everybody or that it varies and that's why people, for example, like some people have more appetite or... How I think you would say how well the charioteer controls the two. For example, the, like the black horse, the appetite horse, needs mm -hmm. to be controlled with a whip, whereas the um, the beautiful white horse, that the spirit one, is like a model of self control. 
And to just like parallel this uh, charity analogy with Freud's like analysis on the psyche, Freud similarly talks about like this three components of the psyche and he categorizes it as id, ego and superego. And yeah. similarly, like id is sort of like the black horse in this case, it's with like uh, related with desires and uh, superego is your moral conscience, whereas ego is like the controller the decision maker yeah um, i think he also compares it to like the different stages of life i think uh, the it for example is more childlike and you're very irritable or not very mature and then you know as you grow you you grow more mature obviously and because today we were in class we were talking about sexual ethics and talking about the charity analogy and um, we're talking about Plato and ancient Greece. And something that I found that I didn't know before was uh, you mentioned how ancient Greece was more open with, I guess, homosexual relationships. I learned that like this whole thing called erastes and eromenos. I don't know if I'm uh, pronouncing it correctly. Um, it's like the true love between an older male and a younger male. For the Greek people, I think that was the true love, whereas the wife would be more for reproduction. And I thought, I think this is a bit off topic, but this is like, I thought that was really interesting. interesting. Yeah. What do you think? Like, do you think that's weird? Because um, older younger male? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I think it has a lot to do with like the very patriarchal and like sexist society. I mean, the Greeks were extremely sexist, right? Like even more than, for example, the Romans or like Mm. other civilizations. So I think it just praising, you know, the male sex like so strongly, I think it's part of that. But the age gap, I I can't really say anything about that. I, I don't think it's weird. I think that probably like happens in every culture, like in every, in every, like at every time yeah true it's funny how how kind of it wasn't like illegal or it was accepted you know that kind of form of living but not really right because you still couldn't really have a family with a man or something you know Mm. so like the woman was more for family um reasons yeah and talking about all this imagery that philosophers use to talk about their ideas there's like this one thought experiment related to mind and body that i looked into for my evq which is like an extended project that you do on top of your a levels here and it's called um mary's room by frank jackson mm-hmm. and it's related to this whole mind body problem frank jackson himself is i think he's a dualist and he looks into epiphenomenalism and Epiphenomenalism is the view that mental <laughs> events are caused by physical events in the brain, but they have no effects upon any physical events. So I like it's this interaction between the mental and the physical, and that's also one of like the biggest criticisms against Descartes. I think it was like proposed by Princess Elizabeth, who sort of criticized Descartes a lot and asked him like, because they were exchanging letters and Elizabeth was just like, yeah, for real. She was like, oh, are you sure about your views? Like how how mind and like body different when they like affect each other? Just to talk more about the thought experiment, it's called as I said, Mary's room, and it describes a scientist called Mary. And she's never seen colours before in her entire life, but she possesses all the physical facts about colour. So say she lives in this black and white room, and the argument goes, like, if, if she 
leaves that room and sees color for the first time like intuitively we think that she gains some new knowledge about color but if she already had all the physical knowledge then this new knowledge must be non-physical i mean i think what's like important is if she has like the feeling of or, or if she knows how it feels to see color you know or can she imagine like in her head what what it's like to see color I think with all the physical, like all the wavelengths or knowledge or like like how light affects uh, like the rays against the eyeballs or whatever, I'm not a scientist, um, but um, like, do you think she'd be able to have that experience of seeing colors? No, but not necessarily. I mean, it's just because I think it's different to learn like a fact or something. I can, you know, you can learn facts about anything, but I think it's still a new experience or a new fact, let's say, to have the feeling of seeing something or have the, you know, storing something in a different way. I mean, if you, for example, know that color has certain properties, I think that's stored in your brain probably differently than this visual, like, memory or visual impression of color like that's yeah. what i would say so i, I think it's different I yeah like, use- <laughs> like as a visual person myself like i think colors definitely feels like something non-physical something more than just physical knowledge like i also looked into like the counter arguments to this knowledge argument and yeah. Like when I was reading them, I, I was like convinced by the counter arguments as well. Because there's four main counter arguments. There's the ability hypothesis, which says like to see colors is like a, more like a know-how knowledge. For example, it's like learning how to swim or cook. Mm-hmm. It's not really a new like non-physical fact, but it's more just like a new type of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like kind of also in the direction of what I thought, right? Yeah, yeah. That's and then like... there's also like acquaintance hypothesis, which is say I know I know of Michael Jackson, but I don't know him per- on a personal level. So you could say the same with Mary's relationship with colors. Like uh, Mary knows of colors, but she didn't have the personal relationship with colors until she saw them for the first time. Mm-hmm. But um, then it's almost like it's only up to the definition. You know, like if she already felt mm-hmm. or if she already had the like visual impression of what it was to to see colors, then it would only be like, you know, what's the definition of her relationship to colors, you know? Yeah, but, I think yeah, in philosophy, it always comes down to like how you define things, I feel like. That's true. So the third counter argument is called phenomenal concept strategy. When Mary sees colors for the first time, so she's like, oh, so this is what it's like to see colors. That this, like what this is to see color, this color experience is uh, expresses like a phenomenal concept. Give an example. So say I say Spider-Man is strong. It's sort of expressing the same fact as saying Peter Parker is strong. So like they're, they're the same person, but they're expressing the same thing, but it's just like different names in this case. And with Mary... Okay could be like the same thing could be said with like her seeing colors for the first time like like that could just be this expressing the same fact as what she already knew she already does know then how it feels to see colors yeah but i i think that's kind of different than from maybe the criticism the first criticism because that was really saying there's something different or that her really seeing the colors is like a different type of experience. And this kind of argument is quite similar to the last one as well, which is like the no learning objection, which just says that like we don't understand what full physical is. 
so we can't really say uh she must gain something new which which is what i think what you're hinting at because because with like we don't actually know the full extent of what happens in a thought experiment like the premise is like she has full physical knowledge but we don't we don't actually never we can never know what it is like to have full physical knowledge maybe it's also a difference if uh, she knows that she's never actually seen it for example, if she say things like, I know what it feels like to see color, but I have never actually seen it. And maybe, you know, that's just different from the feeling she gets or the memory she makes if she really sees it and thinks, okay, like this is me actually seeing it. But then we get back to Descartes because, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, maybe she doesn't know that she has never seen it and, and there is no difference. I think we should also talk about thought experience in general because... I yeah. think in the philosophy of mind, they're super popular. I read this book, Persons and Personal Identity by Amy Kine, and I really didn't like it because, I don't know, there were so many thought experiments in it and of types that I didn't find realistic. You know, for example, if you were a twin or something, or if you were duplicated and that person then died or whatever, like crazy situations just to get to a certain conclusion and I felt like she was almost forcing the conclusion and like setting the experiment up in a certain way. But I really quite like thought experiments. I don't know, because I'm quite a visual person. So I see the arguments set out in front of me and I feel like that just makes more sense to me. I mean, but let's take, for example, um, this experiment. There's this prince and he committed like a very important crime and he knows that he will be put into prison or something for that. So he wants to switch minds with a lobster. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a myth. And then he mm-hmm. succeeds in that. And uh, then obviously his mind is in the lobster. And- Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. The mo- lobster's mind under the sea. Under the sea. is in the prince. And then the question basically is like, would it be fair to incarcerate the prince, like the body of the prince with the mind of the lobster? <laughs> or would you feel like that's unfair, you know? And that's supposed to say something about what your identity is you know like who are you like or you know what makes someone the same over time for example but I feel like because with your mind with the lobster and because your mind is in your brain and that like your brain structure is important for the way that your mind works I feel like it's not obviously it says something about how we feel about minds but I'm not sure that it says something about what minds or identity really is you know well I I quite like that. Also, that's quite funny. Um, obviously, that could never happen in real life. But well, maybe if science gets advanced enough, maybe we could do that. Uh, but, but I could though, because the lobster has to like he has the lobster brain. How is your mind <laughs> supposed to work the way it works now? That is inside of a lobster brain. You know what I mean? Like how that wouldn't that wouldn't be you? I don't know. <laughs> In, like, pop culture and, like, the media, there's so many, like, movies and fairy tales or stuff, like, where, like, animal talks or, like, speaks and... Sebastian! It's just something that we... Like, that's within our imagination and that's why it's a thought experiment and I think philosophers just try to use this imagination to, to present the arguments. 
I guess yeah. it's not really scientific, but I guess that's why it's a thought experiment. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I mean, obviously, I'm not super serious about this, but I just feel like an argument doesn't really convince me if it's based on like a thought experiment, you know? Because mm. I feel like there could probably be another way of, of showing something, or I don't know, it just doesn't really convince me. <laughs> Just to like add another philosopher against like the dualist position, Gilbert Ryle with his famous ghost in the machine. Because um, I think he says like this whole mind-body problem is actually just like a category error, like saying the mental is actually, it's just, it is actually just part of the physical. Because I think he uses this example where like, um, say someone is visiting um, Cambridge and they see all the colleges like Trinity College or Clare College. And then uh, the person asks the tour guide and he's like, where's Cambridge? Where's Cambridge University? The identity of Cambridge is made up of all these colleges. So you could say the same about body, how like, body is actually just made up of like all the different parts including like the mind but i think a point against you know the dualism or or the, to make it more clear maybe even than this ghost in the machine thing it's just that obviously you know we don't really know anything about how consciousness exists or not any like we not nothing maybe but very little but on the other hand, we know so much about how mental states influence uh, bodily states or, you know, vice versa. So I think by now, mind and body dualism isn't super popular among philosophers anymore, just because there's so much evidence, you know, um, against that or because it, it, there are so many problems about, for example, where the soul resides or it's it's just difficult to reach a conclusion because it's... Yeah, because we don't really know, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But like, I feel like we want to believe that there's something more than just my head, my arms and my brain. Like that's something that I think we humans want to, it's exactly the same thing with like why, exactly the same thing why some atheists would be like, uh, we want to believe that there's a greater being like God. It's like, we want there to be something more than just us. And it's almost something like comforting to know that maybe if we have a soul it can survive after we die yeah that's what i meant with demystifying earlier because mm. it's kind of nice to think that there's something magical almost or like spiritual about the soul and yeah. to think that it's only made of flesh or you know like muscle or like not muscle obviously but neurons or yeah like tissue or whatever it, it's so crude almost but mm. i think in a sense it can also be more complex because the idea of a soul is very almost simple right but if we think that our brain is such a like complex mechanism it's like the cr craziest and the greatest like machine that exists and that there are so many different aspects to it and how different parts of our body work together to kind of give birth almost mm -hmm. to to the mind i don't know i think that's also very nice even though it might not be as nice as like living forever Hmm. So would you call yourself spiritual in any way? I don't think so. Unfortunately, I, I think it would be super cool to believe in something magical, but like I can't really believe it. I think I'd, I'd like to think there's something more. Because yeah. um, when I was younger, like because I grew up in China and China's pretty religionless. And I didn't know anything about religions. Our family is quite atheist. So like we don't really talk about any, anything like that. Yeah. But I still, like, when I was younger, even without the knowledge of any religion, I still felt like when I see the world, like, I still felt like there must be something more. Yeah, that's good. 
like maybe you know I'm completely wrong and you're totally right and there's something really cool about the world like well maybe I'm wrong I would love that I um, I am, but I have to say I'm actually like super superstitious. How are you? So yeah, like touch it, on words. Controversial, but yeah, no. And you know, in Italy, um, mm. they always like have the corna, which is like if you put your like pinky and point your finger up, and the other is like down, and that's supposed to you know help against bad luck. For example, oh, really? Yeah, like touch iron. Yeah, you have to start doing it. <laughs> no, my my family's crazy about it. Like whenever someone says like, "Oh, you're gonna break a leg or whatever," we have to touch uh, iron or like do the corner. I'm a rock star now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Thanks thank for coming you again. And listening to us. We hope you enjoyed it. See you soon. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you for coming to our lesson. We hope to see you again next week.